The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 10, verse 16, through chapter 11, verse 16. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though... Your people Israel be as the sand of the sea. Only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Migmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galam. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The inhabitants of Gibeah flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the Majestic One. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead his people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's a privilege to be with you this morning, even virtually. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we ask that you be present with us in all of our various places this morning. We ask that you would move in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would speak, Lord, for we are listening. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, in the 1999 film, The Matrix we got a, a picture, a film of a dystopian society, a society in which everyone was getting up and going to work and doing their thing in a world that looked very similar to ours, but behind the scenes was a different reality. See, the main character, Neo, discovers that the world is not as it appears to be, but has actually been taken over by these crazy super robots who've created this false world called the Matrix that's what he and every other person on the planet is seeing. And he finds this out by getting involved with this group of resistant soldiers who invite him to see that the world that appears to be is not the world as it really is. And they invite him to leave the world as it appears to be and to live in the world as it really is and to fight in this war against these robot enemies in the real world. In this sort of... Uh, very famous scene, Neo, in the early stages of learning about this crazy robot world, is meeting with Morpheus, his mentor, and Morpheus gives him a choice. He says, you got options. You can take the blue pill or you can take the red pill. You take the blue pill, you'll forget all about this. You'll go back to the way things were. You'll never know about what's really going on, and you'll be able to live in this fictional matrix world that you've seen all your life. But if you take the red pill then you will see and discover the truth beyond appearances. And you will have to commit your life to living in the world as it is rather than the world as it appears to be. 
Brothers and sisters, the prophet Isaiah stands before us this morning as he stood before the people of God in ages past and offers us a red pill, an opportunity to see the world as it is rather than as it appears to be and to model our lives after the world as it really is rather than the world that we so often appear to see in our daily lives. This morning, what I want to do is I want to walk us through the text and show us three things that the text confronts us with and then suggest two ways that we might be unsettled by this text and we might live in new ways in our world today in light of it. The first thing we see in this text is that we encounter the Lord in all of his terrifying sovereignty, injustice, and judgment. We encounter the Lord in all his terrifying sovereignty, injustice, and judgment. By sovereignty, I just mean God's all-powerful rule of his world. And to get this, we have to remember the context. Isaiah is writing to the people of God in Judah and Jerusalem. Judah is this tiny little nobody kingdom in the midst of all these major empires and nations and kingdoms much stronger than they. And early in the book of Isaiah, we learn that King Ahaz is confronted by two nations on his northern border. These two nations are invading Israel, and King Ahaz and the people of Judah and Jerusalem are shaking with fear. And Isaiah chapter 7 tells the story of how King Ahaz goes to Isaiah, and Isaiah says, Don't be afraid of those nations who seem more powerful than you, for the Lord will intervene, the Lord will save, and then he challenges them, but you have to trust in the Lord. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. The prophet Isaiah challenges King Ahaz and the people of Judah and Jerusalem to trust the Lord, even though these nations appear to be devastating threats at the very threshold of their borders. But we know from the book of Kings that King Ahaz does not stand firm in faith. Instead, he does not turn for salvation to the Lord, but he turns for salvation to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were another, even larger kingdom. They were the rising star of the ancient Near East, the most powerful military, the most powerful political operation. And Ahaz goes to the king of Assyria and says, I will be your servant. I will give you gold from the temple of the Lord. I will adapt my worship to the way that you worship. If you will only come and save us from our enemies... Ahaz makes a deal with the devil and ramps up his own army. He straps himself with power by going to the Assyrians to bring in hired guns to defend him. And it works. Ahaz turns to Assyria as his savior. And at least for a while, Assyria fends off the enemies of Judah and Jerusalem. There's only one problem. This Assyria that Ahaz turns to was not only a rising superpower, it was one of the most oppressive, violent regimes the world has ever known. Even today in the ancient world, we've dug up images and texts in which the kings of Assyria describe themselves and their exploits. Scenes of unprecedented violence of the Assyrian kings beheading their enemies, flaying them alive in the streets of torture and death and devastation. When Ahaz went to offer himself to the king of Assyria, he would have been confronted with images of all the kings of the earth subjugated and cast down violently before this empire and this emperor, the king of Assyria. And not only was Assyria the most violent and unjust nation on the planet, it was also incredibly idolatrous. The king of Assyria called himself the king of the universe. And a weapon in the hand of Asher, who was the pagan god that the Assyrians worshipped. For Assyria, that meant that the entire world had been given to them by their gods, and it was theirs for the taking. This, this nation, in all of its brutality and oppression and injustice, is the weapon that Ahaz reaches for in his fear to defend himself because he does not think his God can deliver the goods. 
It is an act of idolatry. And under Ahaz's leadership, Israel learns the hard way that when you arm yourself with idols, they so often blow up in your faces. See, this violent, oppressive, idolatrous Assyria saved Jerusalem and Judah for a moment, and then they turned their sights on Judah and Jerusalem. And the nation that Judah and Jerusalem depended on became their enemies in their turn. And they brutally attacked Judah and Jerusalem, and they oppressed them, and they devastated the people of God who had relied on them. They made a deal with the devil, and the devil bit back. And it looked like they were going to have the last word and completely destroy the people of God. And then the book of Isaiah gives us our first red pill moment, our first opportunity to see the world as it is rather than the world as it appears to be. You see, God's people saw Assyria first as a weapon they could use for their salvation, and then they saw them as a weapon in the hand of gods that appeared to be stronger than theirs. But from Isaiah 5 on, Isaiah declares that Assyria is neither an idol that they can use to protect themselves, nor the weapon in the hand of some other god. Instead, Assyria, in all of their injustice and oppression, is a weapon in God's own hand that God is using to discipline and punish his people and to purge their injustice and oppression from among them. We have to understand, this is not the way the nations of the world talked. The nations of the world said, our God is on our side. If he is strong enough, we win. If he is weaker than the other gods, we lose. But Isaiah confronts his people with a God who is so committed to judgment and justice, he can use pagan nations to punish his people for their idolatry and sin. And so Isaiah 5 depicts God whistling, welcoming the nations to punish his people for their idolatry and their injustice and their oppression. It is a picture of the Lord sovereign in power, utterly in control of the nations, wielding that power to bring about justice, not least by giving his people over to the idols that they had chosen. This is all the backdrop to Isaiah chapter 10. But in Isaiah chapter 10, the story turns again because the Lord says not only can he hold Assyria like a, like a rod with which to discipline his people, he can also cast that rod away and bring judgment and justice on Assyria themselves. Listen to 10, 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he has been accomplishing through Assyria, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God says, when I get done using Assyria, I will punish them for their boastful, idolatrous, oppressive behavior. This boastful look had included insulting Yahweh himself. You see, where the king of Assyria, according to Isaiah, had declared that it was by his own wisdom and power of his own gods that he has devastated the nations, Yahweh says, no, 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 let me pull back the curtain for you. You are just a tool in my hands. And shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? As absurd as that, says the Lord to the king of Assyria, would be you thinking that you have somehow escaped my sovereign power and my sovereign judgment. And where the Syrian king bragged that he had pillaged the nations all by himself, he declared that he had found the wealth of nations like eggs in a nest that were untended. The Lord says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, I am the Lord who yet defends my people. As Isaiah will say in a later chapter, as a bird hovers over a nest, so the Lord who commands armies will protect Jerusalem, protect and deliver it. As he passes over, he will rescue it. Indeed, the Lord declares to Israel, he, the light of Israel, will become a fire and the Holy One aflame, and he will burn and devour the thorns and briars of Assyria in one day. Yahweh's fiery presence will consume Assyria's oppressive and idolatrous military and political apparatus, rescuing the people of God from this pagan nation in a very moment. The thorns and briars that Isaiah had said again and again would threaten Israel, here identified with Assyria itself, will be destroyed. Throughout this dark and dizzying tale, and it is terrifying and dark and dizzying if we hear it aright, 
We are confronted with a God, sovereign, ruling, reigning over every atom of our world and exercising his sovereign power to bring judgment and justice on oppressors and idolaters among the nations and among his people. We have to remember as we hear this text that Judah is so small. They are nobodies in the ancient world. They are surrounded by the propaganda of these kings of Assyria that said, we are the superpower. We are the kings of the universe. We hold all the cards. We have destroyed the gods of the nations and we will destroy you and your gods, Judah and Jerusalem, because of our power. And Isaiah invites us to see the truth, to take the red pill and discover that Jerusalem and Judah's God is the Lord, the emperor of all the earth. That he is the one who reigns and who wields and the nations are like a drop in his hands. And when he comes and he touches the mountains, they smoke and he will bring justice and judgment on Israel and on Assyria alike. We're confronted with this God in his sovereignty, bringing justice and judgment. Are we like Israel? Do we presume on God? Do we waltz about in his presence, flaunting his laws, thinking that because we allegedly know the Lord will be protected from his judgment? Isaiah presents us with a God who is willing to use even our enemies to discipline us. Or do we look out at the world and think that the Assyrians of our world have all the power? That at the end of the day, victory belongs to the Assyrian empires and the racist structures and the sin patterns and the addictions that threaten to overwhelm us. No, Isaiah says. Behind the appearances stand a God who is just holy purity in himself, wielding his world, ruling his world to bring judgment and justice. This is a great mystery and a terrifying one that our God brings judgment and justice among the nations, and among ourselves in ways that we cannot see and indeed cannot even imagine. So we are confronted with the terrible sovereignty of God, wielding justice and judgment. But secondly, we are confronted with the reality that Yahweh's judgment and justice bring salvation for his people. Ultimately, Yahweh wields judgment and justice for the goal of bringing salvation for his people. Look at 10, 20 through 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. The language of remnant here is the language of leftovers. It's just what's left in the aftermath. Assyria used that language of leftovers as, as, a, as a slur. When we get done with you, Israel, and we get done with you, Judah, there'll be nothing but leftovers. But Isaiah takes that language of leftovers and he invests it with new meaning and new hope. That small group of people that look like nothing but leftovers will return to the Lord and they will lean on him in truth and God will raise them up as a community in the midst of the earth. This this group of leftovers, this remnant is the reversal of Israel's failure in Isaiah 7 to stand firm in faith. Here, now, at last, they're standing firm in faith in the one who they are returning to, who they are turning to. Isaiah gives Israel and Judah and Jerusalem a vision of the reality behind appearances and invites them to cast their lot with the leftovers, to trust the Lord in truth. This willingness to trust God will depend on them believing the prophetic poetry of Isaiah rather than the appearances they see with their eyes. That's what's going on in this really confusing part in 10, 28-32. It begins, he's come to Aath, he's passed through Migron, and it goes through all these place names. We're like, what's going on there? And what scholars explain is that these are place names and they're describing Assyria sweeping through Judah like an army ravaging everything its path, rushing up towards Jerusalem as the capital city. And by the time they arrive at Nob, they are within sight. They were within striking distance of the capital of Jerusalem. 
This is a description of, 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 of devastation almost beyond hope. It's like saying ISIS has made it all the way and is camped out on Pennsylvania Avenue. It's like saying we are beyond rescue. There is no hope. And then at the very last moment, when devastation seems inevitable, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will brought low. He will cut down the thickets of their forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall all by the majestic one. At the very last moment, Isaiah says, Yahweh can and will intervene to save. And only if they believe that, only if they believe that, will the people of God be able to trust in the reality of the Holy One in their midst rather than what their eyes see, the king of Assyria who seems unstoppable. But Isaiah invites them to take the red pill nonetheless, to see the truth beyond appearances and to encounter a God who is king over all the earth, who works judgment and justice for the salvation of his people. So we see in this text, we encounter the Lord in his terrifying sovereignty and judgment and justice. We see that that judgment and justice is wielded on behalf of salvation for his people. And third, we see that Yahweh's ultimate salvation comes through his promised king. And the aftermath, and the aftermath of God's judgment of Assyria in chapter 10, 11 gives us this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. This is a king, Isaiah tells us, who will come and will bring the salvation that his people have for so long waited this king will bring an unimaginable kingdom with him. Look at how the text explains this. In verse uh, 11, ch chapter, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, we see that this king who brings salvation will bring an unparalleled embodiment of God's own presence. Through the king, the people of God will experience an unparalleled experience of God's own presence. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on this king, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is a depiction of a king who is so overcome by God's presence. His entire life is dominated by this unprecedented experience of Yahweh, the Lord himself. And it is because of this that the king will not just live in the spirit of the Lord, but he will bring the presence of God so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water covers the sea. This king brings salvation because he brings an unparalleled embodiment of God's own presence on the earth in the midst of his people. And yet this king brings salvation also because he brings an unprecedented embodiment of God's own justice. We have seen the Lord wielding justice and judgment on Israel and Assyria. But one day, God says, will come a king who will bring unprecedented justice on the earth. Listen to how Isaiah puts this in 11, 3, and 4. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. He will not decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This is a picture of a king who will fulfill the promise to bring God's justice on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to camp out here for a minute on this idea that we are given of this just king. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but he shall judge for the poor with righteousness. We are all aware of the rampant racial injustice that we are witnessing day in and day out on our screens and in our neighborhoods in the aftermath of the killing of unarmed black people, most recently George Floyd. A few weeks ago, we had a Wednesday night Bible study that Michael Davis led a part of. And he started out by saying that one of the things that makes this uh, encounter with racial oppression so devastating is that now, unlike in earlier areas, eras, we are seeing all these videos and images on social media. It's in our face. We can see it. We can see it happening. 
And yet, how many things have gone unseen? How much oppression and injustice? How often have the poor been denied their rights and black and brown people been oppressed by a racist system and there was no one to see? How often has there not been enough evidence to convict the oppressor? How long have people suffered because we only have eyes to see and ears to hear with? How many pains and tragedies and sufferings and deaths have occurred beyond the lens of our social media cameras and feeds. We are far too dependent on what our eyes see and our ears hear. But God says that he will send a king who will judge not by what his eyes see or ears hear, but out of the righteousness of God's own life, he will bring forth justice on the earth. And yet the problem is not just that there's not that, that, that there, there are injustices and oppressions that go unseen. It's not just that we don't see. It's that even when we do see and we do hear, we still don't bring forth justice. How deeply, how deeply, brothers and sisters, have the eyes with which we see and the ears with which we hear been corrupted by sin and injustice and oppression? How often have we been guilty of Isaiah's charge in Isaiah 6 that we are a people who ever see but never perceive, who are always hearing but never understand? How often has the problem not been that we haven't seen but that we've seen wrongly because our eyes and ears have been broken by sin. Recently, many of us watched on this news this encounter between a white woman and a black man in Central Park. And the white woman calls the police and tells them that this black man, who's showing no real sign of aggression whatsoever, is a threat to her life. There's a black man threatening my life. Many of you, black brothers and sisters, See yourself in that black man in that Central Park, knowing that the color of your skin can bring down the wrath of the authorities and white bystanders and society as a whole. But brothers and sisters, here's my confession. I see myself in that white woman, afraid, not because of a genuine threat, but because her ears and eyes have been shaped and misshaped by our lives in this racist system. What do I mean? I mean to confess this before you, brothers and sisters. As best I can tell, our culture has been deeply, pervasively, extensively shaped by a white supremacist racist ideology that says white is best, black is worse, and everything else is somewhere in between. That white supremacist idolatry has shaped every aspect of our lives. It's shaped the laws that our country has enacted. It's shaped the way that we gather for church. It's shaped the way that we see images on the media, as our brother Terrence Gray wrote about in his recent book. All the images that flood us with this same white supremacist message. And do we have, do not we, do I have the audacity to think that I could swim in a stream with that kind of toxic white supremacy in it for my whole life and not have my eyes and my ears broken and corrupted? by it in that interaction in Central Park we need to lament we need to lament the injustice against that that black man but oh brothers and sisters we who are white need to criticize and turn the light on ourselves and say our ears and eyes have been similarly misshaped this is the tragedy of racism in America as Shaniqua Walker Barnes says in her recent book Quoting an anti-racist facilitator, racism robs all of us of the ability to think for ourselves. Why? Because ourselves have been shaped and discipled into the idolatries and ideologies of white supremacist racism. And what that means is that even when we see, we don't perceive. And justice is lacking because even at our best, our eyes and ears are sick with the kind of injustice that makes it impossible. We look at these protests that are going on in our world, and all we see are thugs and criminals that need to be have tear gas and fire grenade, uh, uh, flash bombs shot at them, rather than seeing the cries of desperate people who've been crying out, how long, O oh Lord, for far too long? 
We look at endless statistics and images and hear endless stories of racism, both from our neighbors and our brothers and on the news. It's in our face. And how often, how often have I been tempted to see all of that and think there must be another explanation besides racism, to explain it away, to take for granted that racism wasn't the real deal, to see white supremacy staring me in the face and to refuse to perceive. And so I, along with me and my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, to contribute to the injustice that comes when human people judge by what their sin-sick eyes see. Brothers and sisters, this is not an out-there problem. This is an in-there problem for me, brothers and sisters. I confess before you that I know, I know that swimming in the white supremacist culture of our world has deformed these eyes and these ears. And if I needed any evidence... When I recently took one of those implicit bias tests that tries to test the extent to which we have biases against people from other ethnicities that we're not aware of, my score came back guilty as charged. The problem is not just that we don't see it, it's when we do see our injustice, de- de- our, our misshaped by injustice eyes do not perceive. And this is why it's so important to get this out of the stump of Jesse. That may not make much sense to you as you hear that, but the commentators agree that what's happening here is Isaiah is doing an end around King David. Jesse was David's father. David was the one in whom all the hopes of the kings lay. David was the most likely to succeed at bringing justice and righteousness for the poor, the most likely to succeed at bringing justice for the nations, and he failed the test. And his descendants failed the test. And so Isaiah looks out at the world and he says, your best and brightest have failed to bring the kind of justice that you long for. And so there will come a king, not out of the line of David, but from back behind that, a work of God, whereby God will come down in this king and judge not by what his eyes see or his ears perceive, but out of the righteousness and justice of God's own life. This is the hope that we've longed for. This is the king who can give justice that we demand and we need and who can root the injustice out of our injustice-sick hearts. If you're not longing for a king who will bring that kind of true, genuine justice in the world, you're not paying attention to what's going on out there. And if you're like me, and you're not longing for a king who can finally one day pull up the injustice of our hearts by the roots, you're not listening to what's going on in here. And because this king is bringing an unanticipated embodiment of God's presence, an unimaginable experience of God's justice, he's also bringing an unanticipated restoration of all creation. Under the rule of this just king, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and none shall hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. How is that possible? It's possible in part... Because not only will this king bring Yahweh's presence, not only will this king bring an unprecedented, unimaginable justice, not only will this king bring restoration to the world, this king will do all as part of an invitation to the very ends of the earth to experience the salvation of our God. They shall not hurt or destroy none of them, none of the nations, none of the peoples, none of the special interest groups, none of the parties will harm or destroy on the Lord's holy mountain because finally the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And when that happens, even the nations are invited to salvation. In that day, says Isaiah in 11, 10 through 12, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Earlier in Isaiah, the Lord had summoned the nations to punish his people. Now he summons the nations to experience salvation with his people. 
Earlier I said that God wielded His judgment and justice for salvation for His people. Now we find the greater truth that God wields His judgment and justice for the salvation of the world. This crazy list of places that are so unfamiliar to us. We don't know exactly all that they mean, but they mean at least two things. One, they represent the farthest flung corners of the world. From the furthest regions to the north of Judah and Jerusalem, to the out into the sea and to the east, and all the way into sub-Saharan Africa. And we know that the nations that are invited to experience the salvation of God include the oppressor enemies from which God had had to liberate His people. Assyria is on the list as recipients of this king's salvation. Isaiah makes it abundantly clear in chapter 19. He says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Israel. Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the works of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. Isaiah doesn't just confront us with a God who wields justice against the oppressor. He confronts us with a God whose justice wielded against the the oppressor turns the oppressor into friends. It is as if, as the Lord is saying, one day I will say, blessed be the ISISs of our world. Blessed be the neo-Nazis and white supremacists of our world. Blessed be the enemies wherever they are because I will wield my justice and my judgment in such a way that I will bring them to salvation along with you. This, this is the end of God's just rule. Liberation and reconciliation together. As the African-American theologian J. Otis Roberts taught us to long for, liberation and reconciliation side by side, not because we created it, but because we look for a king who brings an unprecedented experience of God's presence, an unimaginable experience of his justice, restoration to all of the cosmos, and extends his invitation of salvation to the world. In the beginning, we're confronted with Yahweh and all of His terrifying power, wielding judgment and justice in ways we don't understand. Here again, Isaiah gives us the red pill and invites us to see the world as it is and to say that all that this holy, just judge does is to invite any who will come to repentance and salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are confronted in this text with a strange, terrifying judgment and justice of our king. We are forced to recognize that judgment and justice is wielded for the salvation of God's people. That that salvation comes through a king who will then extend that salvation to the very ends of the earth. If we take the red pill, if we allow Isaiah to tell us the truest truths about the world, rather than the partial truths that we read in the newspaper and see in our neighbors and witness on our televisions and our social media feeds, what difference would it make? What difference would it make if we accepted this crazy poetry of the prophet as the truest imaginable description of our world? Just two application points. Number one, if we believed Isaiah, we would cast aside our idols. Have they not done us enough damage? Isaiah wrote to a people who turned to the most oppressive, violent nation on the planet as an idol to try to secure themselves against their fears. And as a result, that nation devastated them. Turning to idols is like playing with snakes. They bite us. They blow up in our faces. And if we believed the world that Isaiah portrays before us this morning, we would cast ours aside. Brothers and sisters, has the idolatry of white supremacy not done enough harm? Let us cast it aside. Has our idolatry to greed and classism, has it not reaped a whirlwind of devastation in our world? Have we not suffered enough? Let us cast it aside. Have your addictions to sex and food and alcohol and drugs and work, have they not done enough devastation to you and to all who are dearest to you? Let us cast them aside. 
lest we come under the judgment of God for clinging to our idols. And I want to say this as clearly as possible. While it is true for us as Christians who stand on this side of the cross and resurrection, that Jesus has taken the just judgment for our sins on himself, the weight of Scripture tells us that he nevertheless brings judgment on us when even as his people we cling to his idols. We cling to idols. He brings judgment. This is the point that Richard was making several weeks ago when he quoted from Hebrews to remind us that even those of us who are saved, who are sons and daughters, will experience God's discipline if we continue to cling to our idols. John Calvin, when he read this passage, said, judgment begins with the church because that's the way that the Lord has healed and is continuing to heal us of our idolatries and our sins. In 1 Corinthians Paul confronts a church that, like the people of God in Isaiah, tried to combine worship with the oppression of the poor. And God says that then at your table where you celebrate the Lord's Supper, I am present as a judge, bringing judgment, and some of you have even died. Brothers and sisters, our idols are destructive in themselves, and they, and they put us at risk of God's discipline and judgment in our lives. If we could but see the world that Isaiah portrays, we can identify them and cast them to the side and turn all of our trust on the Lord, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God and Father of Jesus Christ. But secondly, if we got this text, if we allowed Isaiah to be the truest depiction of our reality, we will worship King Jesus as our only hope in life and death. We will worship King Jesus as our only hope in life and death. What do I mean? The offer of salvation that the Lord offers in chapter 11 is only finally possible when Jesus, the one who died on the cross and rose on the third day and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, returns to establish his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The best of us can only accomplish the kind of justice that comes from sin-sick eyes and humanly limited ears. We await and long for a justice that's far more just than that. And the only source is King Jesus. Now there is a great danger here. A great danger here. Of course, if we know that King Jesus is our King, if we accept Him as our Lord, of course, of course we seek to live as citizens of that kingdom now. Of course we strive for justice and mercy and righteousness in the midst of the world. Of course He sends us out to do work in the power of His Spirit. That message is true. And it is a message that I hope you at Downtown Church know that I love and love to preach. But I'm arrested by the moment and I'm arrested by this passage to not get there too quickly. And instead to remind us that we are sent out, yes, but what we long for awaits the return of Jesus. Your heart's cry for justice awaits the return of the King. Nothing less and nothing more. And what that means is that before we can begin to think about what it would look like to live citizen lives of our kingdom out there, we have to come to our king and worship him as the only hope for our sins and for our struggles. And brothers and sisters, what that means is that right now we may be in a season and a time where our first task is simply to look to the king and say, how long, O Lord? And to join the prayers of rage of the psalmist where he cries out to God, wake up, rouse yourself. Or to join our prayers of pain and lament with the psalmist who says, How long, O Lord? And to know that those cries of pain and suffering and anguish are not shouted out into the void, but they are offered as worship to the King who will answer them by His might and by His power when He fills the world with His glory and sets up His kingdom in our midst. We need to know, we need to know today that before and behind and beyond all our efforts at change is a king that we are utterly dependent on. Only if he's at the reign, only if he's at the only if he holds the reins of our hearts can we ever hope to get anywhere. And we can't hope to get all that far unless he comes back 
and returns. So brothers and sisters, what I offer you here is not an image of what we can accomplish if we go out, but the image of a king who promises to accomplish what we cannot and never could because we are not Jesus, but we await Jesus and we long for him and we lament his absence and we name the pain and we name the rage to him knowing that he will return, knowing that all of our pain and all of our rage and all of our lament are just different ways of saying, come Lord Jesus. Uproot the violence and injustice of our world. Unroot the violence and injustice hidden in our hearts. That's where I want to leave us, brothers and sisters, with a call to action that amounts to simply this. Cast away your idols and turn to the living God, embodied in Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who will come one day on the clouds to set up his kingdom in our midst. Let us worship Christ, the risen King, the only one who can bring the world we've always longed for, and the only one, the only one who can transform us into a people capable of receiving it. Let's pray. Lord, you are the just one behind all our longings for justice. You are the merciful one behind all of our feelings of shame and longing for forgiveness. You are the one who precedes us and outlasts us and holds us in place by your mighty hand. You are the God who gives the very breath that we breathe. And Lord, we kneel before you this morning and call out that we need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We need you by your Spirit right now. And we need you to return for the sake of your world. Jesus, we are longing with groans we cannot even put into words over the devastating pain of our sin-sick world and our sin-sick hearts. Come and rescue us. Come and rescue us, Jesus. Bring your kingdom. Set it up in our midst. And make us citizens of it. By your life and by your death and by your resurrection and by the power of your spirit that is at work within us. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have been confronted this morning by a king who welcomes you into a kingdom, let us worship him now by laying down our tithes and offerings before him. In this time of COVID-19, where we're meeting virtually, you can do that by texting uh, 73256. Text Downtown Church to 73256. And let us together worship our generous king by giving him all of ourselves including our gifts, tithes, and offerings.